Well, I welcome you to our uh, Sunday school lesson. This is for Graceway Baptist Church. We're going to present this on uh, November the 15th, I believe. and uh, Or is it 16th? Oh, well, it's one of those days. Um, and we're still talking about the greatest prayer ever prayed. The prayer of Jesus. Can you imagine? Do you notice when you read in John chapter 17... The prayer is a little different than the prayer that Jesus told us to pray. Uh, in our prayer, it says, uh, forgive us our debts or forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. You notice that uh, when Jesus prays, there's no need for that because uh, he is the sinless son of God and he does everything perfectly. And that is uh, absolutely beyond us, isn't it? And so we think about this perfect son of God, the God-man, as he prays what all is on his heart. And what is it that he uh, is getting ready to, well, to die for? And uh, what is it that he lives for in his resurrection body? What is it that he is still, I would assume, praying for us? I think this high priestly prayer is still the themes that are in this prayer are still on the heart of the Lord Jesus. And they'd better be on our heart too. Because I think the great disconnect and problem that Christians have is we're praying about things that are not really on the heart of God. We're praying about things that are temporary. We're praying about things that... Five years from now, they may not even matter. And in eternity, we'll probably never bring them up again. Now, am I saying we shouldn't pray about those things? Because uh, I do think about the scripture tells us that we are to cast all of our cares on him. So I would say if it is something that is a care, then you need to take it to the Lord and cast it upon him. And not let it burden down your soul or distract you or keep you from doing what you need to do. And to know that he cares about you. And so like a parent, if it's important to the child, it's important to the parent. At least to some degree. But if that's all we ever do and all we ever get around to, everything we pray about is temporary, it's physical, it's inconsequential in the big scheme of things I think that we uh, well I think that's one way you can measure your spiritual growth what's your prayer life look like and does it look like Jesus prayer life does it look like the things that are on his heart maybe maybe you could go before the Lord as a result of reading this prayer and actually say something like this Dear Lord, cleanse my heart of the things that burden me and fill my heart with the things that burden you. And when we think about all of the things that grieve the heart of God, you know, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit. What grieves the Holy Spirit? And uh, what is it that's going on in this world that that we ought to be concerned about and we ought to be praying more about than we do. Uh, we're going to talk today about world missions. We're going to talk today about evangelism. We're going to talk today about, well, the Great Commission, as we call it, because this is a theme of the prayer of Jesus. And Jesus' death 
His resurrection and his ascension did not end his work. His work continues on. The Holy Spirit came. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Um, let's talk about that for just a moment. The Holy Spirit comes upon you to indwell you the moment that you were saved. Now, some people and some denominations kind of act like that when you get saved, you get Jesus, and then later you get the Holy Spirit, and boy, that's when the magic happens. That's when it really takes place. But uh, Paul said in the book of Romans in the 8th chapter that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, you're none of His. The Spirit of God comes to live within you the moment that you were saved. And all of us have the same amount, I guess you would say, of the Holy Spirit. There are no haves or have-nots, okay? The idea of being filled with the Spirit is not the idea of having an amount of the Spirit. See, I've got a water bottle I've been using. And, uh, you know, the amount is down here. And, oh, if I could just fill this up with water, it'd be filled up to here. And that's what we think that God does with us. I need more of God. I used to hear a song uh, that was sung by a famous singer. And uh, I sang the song a few times. And it was saying that uh, more of you, more of you, this is my prayer that I would have more of you. Well, you know what I found out reading through the scripture? Man, scripture messes up really good songs sometimes. Did you know you've got all of God, all of Jesus that you're ever going to get? That idea in Ephesians 5.18 of being filled with the Spirit is not talking about the amount of the Spirit that you have. It's talking about the control of the Holy Spirit. Is the Spirit controlling your life? Is the Spirit controlling your thoughts, your emotions, your decisions? Is the Spirit leading you? Is the Spirit restraining you? Is the Spirit compelling you? I mean, what, what's happening? If you're living for yourself, then no. If you are violating the Word of God, then no, you are not filled with the Spirit. You are under control of the flesh. And the spirit and the flesh, the Bible says, they are going against each other. Against each other. Fighting each other. And uh, so we are told that we are to be controlled. That's why Paul uses the analogy, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be under the control, under the influence of alcohol. But be under the influence, under the control of the Holy Spirit. And what happens when the Holy Spirit is controlling you? Jesus said very clearly, you're going to have a power-filled life that is going to witness for Christ. And you're going to witness for Jesus in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, I remember when I was a young believer hearing somebody say that we don't really have any right to go to Samaria until our, quote-unquote, Jerusalem has been reached. Is that what Jesus is saying? 
Is this talking about progress? Okay, work on Jerusalem. And then when you get that finished, then you can go to Judea. When you get that finished, then go to Samaria. And when that's finished, go. Is, is that what this is talking about? Uh, well, I don't know that there will ever be a time where our Jerusalem, our city, will ever be completely evangelized so that we can move on. And I've heard peop some people say, well, Jerusalem is like our Oklahoma City. And then Judea is our Oklahoma. And then Samaria is our America. Well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense when you think about what the Jews thought about Samaria uh, and all of that. that. That makes no sense at all, does it? In fact, the United States didn't exist when uh, Jesus gave those words in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And the concept of having a country of United States within it that have a federal government. That, nobody had even thought about anything like that. What Jesus is talking about here is something that's supposed to be taken care of simultaneously. All of these things are happening at the same time, not one and then another and then another. In fact, I don't even think that he is talking uh, because Jerusalem and uh, Judea and Samaria and all of that. There's going to be a time when Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 A.D., by the Roman general Titus and the inhabitants are going to be scattered. Uh, Judea, we don't even think of terms of Judea anymore. There's no real region of that. We can look at the historical boundaries and all of that. But there's nothing like that now. Samaria, I don't know when it went away. Uh, there are uttermost parts of the earth still. But uh, that's not what Jesus, I don't think that's what he meant. I think he was meaning in Jerusalem, you witness to people that are around you and people that are hostile toward you. Jerusalem was the place where Jesus was crucified. Jerusalem is the place where the Sadducees and the Pharisees lived. Jerusalem is a place of danger. Jerusalem is a place where the disciples felt compelled to go and hide. And it was the coming of the Holy Spirit that took those disciples who had, in Peter's case, denied the Lord. And in the case of the other ones, they were hidden and scattered and in the shadows. And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, it's when they stood up and it's when they were bold. When Peter, the denier, preaches to those people and he actually tells them God sent his son and this son was approved by God shown to be who he was through prophecy and through miracles. And then what happened? You, by wicked hands, crucified him. Now, when you think about that, that's a far cry from, I never knew him. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have anything to do with him. This is the same guy with the power of the Holy Spirit pointing his finger as a prosecutor might to accuse the people that are listening to him of being guilty of the murder of the Son of God, the Messiah that they prayed for. They murdered him because of their sin. Well, no wonder they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? You know, I like the kind of invitation where the preacher doesn't tell the people what to do, but the people are under such conviction, they're asking the preacher what to do. Wow, then you're seeing the power of God, right? And 3,000 were baptized 
that day. That's the difference. And what was happening there? Well, it's right after that that you see that uh, through the preaching and through miracles that they worked, Peter and John end up before the Sanhedrin and they are in trouble. The apostle James is uh, executed because of all of this. I mean, they, they got in trouble for it. That's what happens in a Jerusalem. So I would contend that your Jerusalem is much more than your local city. Because most of the disciples weren't from Jerusalem anyway. They were Galileans. Jerusalem is the place where you face hostility and opposition, particularly from false religion. Okay, think about that. Judea, what would that be like? Well, in Judea, maybe it's not near as hostile, but people are still trapped in sin. Judea is the region where Jerusalem was. It's the place where the temple was and all of that. In fact, when you go back to the Old Testament, it was called Judah then. Those people thought, well, God will never judge us because, hey, this is where the religious people live. We're better than the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, he'll judge them, but he won't judge us. And by the way, the temple is here. I think Judea is, you witness to people that are, maybe they're Baptists like you. But they're lost Baptists. And they get mad whenever you try to tell them they need to be born again. And they may come back at you. What do you mean I need to be born again? I go to church. I give my tithes. And they sound like the Pharisee praying in the temple more than they sound like a child of God. They get upset over everything. They're constantly getting their feelings hurt. They act like they own the church. They act like everybody is accountable to them. And on and on and on it goes. You know people like that. Well, that's the way the average Judean would have been when the disciples started telling them about Jesus and telling them about their sin and their need for the grace of God. It would not have been met with open arms in Judea. They're probably going to be saying, who do you think you are and get off of my doorstep and get away from me and I don't want anything else to do with you. It's kind of like witnessing the family. You know, we're going to be having Thanksgiving here soon and your family gets together and uh, sometimes it gets a little uncomfortable when there's Uncle Joe over there and you know what he believes and you want to witness to him. And about the time you start talking about the gospel at the dinner table, everybody else starts stuffing food in their mouth and it gets strangely quiet. And you can see Uncle Joe, his blood is starting to boil and it makes it real uncomfortable. And it's about that time that grandma says, let's not talk about this here at the table and you kind of ruin Thanksgiving. That's what happens when you witness in Judea. You're witnessing to people who are kind of like you and people that are kind of hostile toward the truth of their sin and the truth of salvation and who God is. The Judeans thought that they were acceptable to God because of what they did and who they were. Samaria. That's the part where, well, the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. They had history. And uh, those were lines you didn't want to cross. And I think about Samaritans as going into hostile territory where because of governmental differences or because of political differences, maybe even because of racial differences, you reach out to people who will not be welcoming. You reach out to people that maybe your own people wouldn't understand why you care about them and why you want to reach out to them. 
And we've got to cross those lines because people need Jesus. They need the gospel of Christ, no matter who they might be. Democrats need Jesus. Republicans need Jesus. Black people need Jesus. White people need Jesus. And we could go through the whole spectrum of, of races and religions and cultures and all of those. They need Jesus. And then, of course, the uttermost parts of the earth, those people that may not even speak your own language, those people that don't understand you, people that bow before idols. We saw a lot of that when Isaac and I would go to India. We would reach the uttermost parts of the earth, people we don't even understand and people who don't understand us, and yet they desperately need Jesus. So what is Jesus? Jesus saying the gospel that we say that we believe should touch every aspect and area of life. And sometimes you can touch all of those kind of people right here. The world has kind of gotten smaller and it's come to us. You don't always have to travel hundreds and thousands of miles to uh, touch people like that. The uttermost parts of the earth are here. The Samaritans are here. Sometimes they knock on your door, don't they? And they try to tell you, you need to come to their religion and you have a chance to uh, tell them about Jesus. Sometimes the Judeans are here, family members and friends and people that are of your same culture and may even use some of the same words you do with a different vocabulary. And there are people who are hostile toward the faith living here because they are so steeped in their human goodness. So it, it's all there. That may not be the best explanation you've ever heard, but at least it gets you to thinking a little bit more of the way Christ was thinking. And this filling of the Spirit will cause you to do that. Now, Jesus says in John 17, 12, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. We talked about that last week, the security of the believer. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that's Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, say Jerusalem, and because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. See, our isolation and our separatism is killing us because we don't always have lost people that we can witness to. And Jesus said, I don't want you taken out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Now listen to this. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So did you realize you have been made, created, and put in this world, and you were saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ through his blood, death, burial, and resurrection. 
And now you are commissioned, you are sent into the world, into your culture, into your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the earth, just as Jesus was. Jesus, at the end of his life, was able to say, it is finished. Paul, at the end of his life, was able to say, I have finished the race. Will you be able to say that? Finishing the race is not just living until you die. It is fulfilling the will of God for your life. And Jesus said, this is the will of God. You've been sent into the world to give the world the word of God. So why is the Great Commission important? Well, think about it. Because of the coming of Jesus. Why would God send his son into the world? Well, he sent his son into the world, Jesus told us, not to condemn the world. That's already happened. They're already under condemnation. You were under condemnation before you were saved. Jesus was sent that you might be saved. He had to pay for your sins through his death, burial, and resurrection. But Jesus is taken back up into heaven. What's going to happen now? How is the gospel going to go out? Well, his spirit comes and it fills all. He fills all of us. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say it. He, the Holy Spirit, fills all of us. And we all go out. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're witnessing in all of those places that Jesus mentioned in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And we have the power to stand up against anything that might come our way in terms of opposition or hostility. Because greater is he that is in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that is in the world. And so we are carrying on the work of Christ. And we do this because Jesus came and we live in a world that doesn't know it. Jesus came and we have a story to tell to the nations. Romans 10:14 says, "How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how how are they to hear without someone preaching?" And that's not saying, how are they going to hear without pastors? It's not what that said. Preaching is the word that means with a proclaimer, like a town crier in uh, the old days. It would come into the town square and go, hear ye, hear ye the word of the king. And everybody would gather and listen to what he said. You're a town crier taking the word of the king to uh, the earth. And so the life, death, burial, and resurrection uh, of Christ is so important. That's what the world needs to know. But here's one other thing that I'm afraid we leave off. They need to know the reason that he came. The reason that he came. Why did he come? To save sinners. We need to tell them that they're sinners and that God forgives sinners. And we live in a world that doesn't like to talk about sin, and we don't define hardly anything as sin anymore. And so we've got a world that thinks they're righteous, they're holy, I'm just as good as anyone else. How dare you judge me, they might say. Well, God already has judged them, and the only way out is through Jesus. And we've got to love them enough, and love our God enough, and love the gospel enough to tell them. I want you to be a proclaimer of the gospel, a soul winner as we used to call it. Number two, we want to carry out the Great Commission because of the certainty of the plan. Notice how Jesus said things like, those whom you gave me. 
and that the scripture might be fulfilled. Those kind of things. I have given them your word. Notice the certainty of all of that. I do not believe in a system that says that God just said, oh no, the world is lost. What are we going to do? And then Jesus said, oh, I know I'll go and die for them. You think anybody will come? I don't know, but we'll do our best. That's so weak and it's not biblical. I was at a meeting of the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma. And I was sitting out there and listening to one of the speakers. And one of the speakers said that the gospel was like this. That God the Father is sitting there and he keeps sending his word. And he keeps sending his prophets. And he keeps sending people down to earth. And an angel would always come back and say it didn't work. They're not receiving it. They've disobeyed it. They're not going to live up to all of that. And then finally... God stood up and said, well, I guess I'm just going to have to go down there myself. What a weak and horrible way to do that. Jesus was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. That has always been the plan. And redemption through the blood of Christ has always been the plan. And when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there was nothing in heaven that said, I hope somebody will believe it. I hope somebody will come. And it was a whole lot more than God just looking down through time and saying, okay, that one will and that one will and that one will. Okay, it's a go. Let's do it. Uh, this is something that is based upon certainty. It's rigged, isn't it? Jesus said, these are the ones whom you have given me. Paul calls them the elect of God. We're the body of Christ. And there's a certainty in all of this. And so as you and I go out and share the gospel, we have a, not just a, a, the best story we can think of in the best way we can do it. We know what the gospel is. And Romans 1.16 says we shouldn't be ashamed of it because it's the power of God. Not your clever story, not your personality or anything like that, but the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ when it's given with the proper reason. And we give that because it is the power of God. And God, through your proclamation of the gospel, is going to save people. And it's going to fulfill the scripture, as Jesus said. And it's going to do it completely. And it's going to spread the word of God. And the elect are going to hear the word of God and be drawn to faith in Jesus Christ. It's rigged. Let's go do it. Let's go tell people. And let's not think about the times when the word is rejected because you may be planting a seed. You may be watering a seed. You may not be the harvester, but somebody will. And it's a certainty that it's going to be harvested and that there is going to be a harvest. And these people are going to be in heaven. And you had a part in the redemptive plan of God by sowing the seeds or watering the seeds of the gospel. I mean, this is exciting stuff when we think about it. Not time to clam up. It's time for us to speak. And number three, we do this because of the authority that is given to us. You're not just out there walking on enemy territory and somebody says, what right do you have to enter here? And we just shrink back. I don't really have any rights. I'm just here to try to, to try to help you. No, we should walk out there in confidence. We should walk out there in the power of the Holy Spirit because we're indwelt by him. And listen in verse 18. Jesus said. As you. 
the Father have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I mean, the same authority, the same mission, just from a different perspective, right? And we proclaim just as Christ did, and we give the word just like Christ did, and we do it for the glory of the Father and out of obedience to the Father, and we march here on this world in enemy territory in the power and the strength of the one who has already defeated Satan and his demons. We need to act like it. Act like it. We need to believe that and walk in confidence and in victory. And also we do it because of what Jesus has accomplished. He says that he did this for their sakes. I mean, this is all about the glory of the Father. When I think about why Jesus died on the cross, uh, yeah, as my substitutionary sacrifice, he died for me. But never forget the primary reason he died is obedience to God. He died for God, for God's justice to be satisfied so that the Father could redeem sinners like us. But before he could show love and mercy and grace to us, his wrath had to be appeased. And the justice of God had to have been poured out because we were sinners deserving that. And Jesus is the one who came and said, I'll take their place. Judge me in their place. I will bear the penalty of their sin. And so he did it for the glory of God the Father and for the appeasement of God the Father. He also did it to accomplish the eternal plan. You know, when we think about all of this from before the foundation of the world, when was that? I don't know. Before the world was created is what that means. But how long before? Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were here for an eternity before the world was created. And at some time, theologians have talked about the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit gathered around the council tables of eternity to decree all of this. I don't know how all of that happens or how all of that works or how that fits in with an all-knowing trinity who maybe they've just always had this in their mind. But I do know this. When I tell somebody about Jesus and they say, yeah, I want to trust him. And they pray to God and God forgives their sin and the Holy Spirit comes to live within them. I just witnessed a miracle and I also got to participate in the eternal plan of the Father. I mean, folks, this is big, big, big stuff. This is bigger than being a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. This is bigger than being a political, a politician. This is bigger than having all of the possessions of the world. This is bigger than having your name and your face recognized by people across the globe. This is the eternal plan of God. And God uses us to carry out what he has determined to do. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Why would you want to hold back on that? And then the Bible talks about the substitute here. Jesus is the substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him 
we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what the world needs to know. It's not about your works. It's about your substitute. Who's paying for your sin? Did you do it? It'll always be inadequate. And you'll go to hell and pay for it forever. Or if Jesus did it, then you'll receive the righteousness of God. That is amazing. Isaiah 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So do you intentionally tell others about this wonderful news and this great story? There's nothing like it. There's nothing better. And nothing is more worth your time or your life than fulfilling the Great Commission. My prayer is that Graceway will be filled with people who are passionate about carrying out the Great Commission of Christ in fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus. Amen, and God bless you.